to the fifth chapter of the book of Matthew. Matthew 5, we'll be reading verses 38 to 42 as we continue our series in the book of Matthew, specifically in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42. Hear now God's word. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him of ass of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. May God add his blessing. Let's pray. Father, we pray now again as we look into your word that your Holy Spirit would take these words and impress them on our hearts. We recognize, Father, as we have been going through this series and we see the error of the Pharisees, we pray, Father, that you would keep us free from that error. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would minister to our hearts as we recognize the truthfulness of your word. We pray that we would not be hearers of the word only, but that we would be doers. We pray to the end that if anyone is here this morning that doesn't know you, that they would repent of their sins and come to Christ. And we would also pray that your church would be edified by your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. This uh, past week, I had the opportunity to have a new experience, something that I had never done, never had the opportunity to do before. I was selected for jury duty. <laughs> now, you have to understand that being a police officer and then being in a clergy, there used to be automatic exemptions, and we never had to uh, be selected for that, but they've done away with that. The law has changed. and. So I went with my summons and hand out to the central jury room in Riverhead. And I was called actually to be part of the panel to be selected for a motor vehicle accident, a civil trial that took place in, in, in the accident took place in Coram. As I sat there and watched these lawyers uh, impanel the jury, if you've never been to jury duty, uh, what, what happens is the two lawyers from the opposing sides uh, pick uh, cards at random from a drum, and then they get to question the prospective jurors to see if they're fit to stand for jury duty on this particular case. Uh, each of the lawyers uh, asked questions of the prospective jurors. Now, it was obvious from the questions they asked which side that they were on, because obviously each one wants jurors who are going to be sympathetic towards their particular client. But each of the lawyers kept emphasizing one fact in particular, and this I have to say that they did a pretty good job of. And both of them emphasized the fact that, could you uh, decide this case based on the facts of law and not your personal opinions of what the law says? 
they both did a pretty good job of, of making clear that the law is not subject to personal opinion. Uh, for example, in an MBA case, uh, the law of the New York State says that if a person is found responsible for the motor vehicle accident, uh, he is liable to pay monetary damages. Now, you may not think that law is fair, but that's irrelevant in a court of law because that is the law of the land and the juror must put his personal feelings aside as to the fairness of the law and decide the issue based on the facts of the case alone. While I was sitting there and listening to these lawyers go through their long voir dire, their questioning of the jury, I was reminded of our series in the Sermon on the Mount. Because as I was sitting there and looking at these lawyers and all their professionalism and, and the highfalutin words, all I could think of was the Pharisees. You see, it was very clear that why, regardless of what these lawyers said, they weren't that interested in fairness as they were about winning the case. You see, we saw that same type of an attitude with the Pharisees as we've been going through this series. Uh, the Pharisees very clearly demonstrated pious attitudes towards murder and adultery and divorce, the taking of oaths. They claimed to keep the law. Uh, they could stand before the, the Israelites and say, we have not murdered. We haven't committed adultery. And yet we saw that Jesus said, yes, you have. You've committed murder in your hearts. You've committed adultery in your hearts. You've manipulated the divorce laws which were intended to protect women and you've used them for your own benefit. They devised ways to get around the keeping of their oaths and their vows by the little manipulations as to how they swore and we saw how it was almost as though they were keeping their fingers crossed. The Pharisees were not men of their words. This morning, we're going to be continuing in our series. We're looking at the fifth statement that Jesus uses to expose the error of the Pharisees concerning the law of God. Now, remember, keep in mind that what Jesus is doing here is not giving new law. He is giving the true meaning of the law of God in light of the error of the Pharisees. Our text is Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42. Let's read it one more time. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him of ass of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Now, as we've done in the past on these sections of scripture, we're going to break break it down this way, the first thing we're going to do is look and see exactly what did the Old Covenant law say. Three times in the Old Testament we find these words, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Let's look at the first two, Exodus 21. Right after the Ten Commandments we see uh, Moses says this, Exodus 21 verses 22 to 26. And if men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she has a miscarriage, yet there is no further injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him. He shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, 
eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. And if a man strikes the eye of his male or female slave and destroys it, he shall let him go free on account of his eye. Second portion of scripture that deals with this is in Leviticus 24, verses 19 to 20. And if a man injures his neighbor, just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. Now this is the law of God as it was given to Moses, who then gave it to the people of Israel. Uh, we might look at this and say, okay, well, what is the purpose of this law? What was the purpose? Why did God give Old Testament Israel this law? I think very clearly we can see that the main purpose of these Mosaic laws that are detailed here is to control anger, violence, and revenge. You see, as natural people, we have a tendency to get angry when we are wronged, don't we? And that anger, that natural anger that comes from us when we are wronged, leads most often to retaliation. And that retaliation leads to violence. We can see that as a pattern throughout human history. In fact, there's a popular saying in our culture today, it says, I don't get mad, I get even. That's absolutely false. It sounds very pious to say it. In fact, it's somewhat of a pharisaical saying. Uh, first, I take exception with it on two counts. First, uh, just the mere fact of the saying that I don't get angry, I get even. We see that the person really does get angry, but he has got this unique ability to control that anger and to use it for retaliation. So he's still angry, or he wouldn't want to get even. Uh, the second uh, thing that I can... Uh, that I disagree with is we are not content with getting even. We want to get one up. If I step on your toe, you're not content with stepping on mine, you want to stamp on it. If I shove you, you're not content to just give me a little shove back, you give me a bigger shove back. We're not content just to get even. You see, but it's this type of nature that man has that the law of God sought to prevent. It sought to prevent that type of retaliation. So how did the law of God seek to do this? By removing vengeance from the individual and putting it into the hands of judges. You see, even in that first portion of scripture that we read in Exodus, if you look in verse 22, it says, And he shall pay as the judges decide. You know, I was a member of the hostage negotiating team in Suffolk County. And uh, whenever we had a, a barricaded persons or a hostage situation, uh, I was one of the men that would be called. And we had a, a standard rule. Uh, whenever we got to a scene and there was this hostage situation, the police officers who, who were containing the situation were, uh, were immediately removed from the scene and replaced by our emergency service squad. Now, there were two reasons for this. One, the, the heat of the moment, the fact that they had chased him, maybe even had shots fired on him, maybe they were involved in a fight, 
the, the level of anxiety and stress on the police officers at the scene was very high. And that type of situation, one stray shot can be disastrous. So we would pull out the police officers who were involved in the pursuit of the chase, and then we would bring in trained, specialist, calm, cool. They weren't involved in the situation, and they come in and they can make good decisions. That was part of our strategy. And, and that was very important to me uh, because as a hostage negotiator, many times we had to put ourselves at risk and walk up face to face with an armed assailant and negotiate with them. And I wanted to know that the man behind me was going to do exactly what he was supposed to do. I didn't want him firing shots while I'm standing up there. So it was a very good strategy. And that's exactly what we see in the law of God. Taking the the uh, necessity for retaliation and the payment out of the hands of the people who are personally involved and putting it in the hands of fair and impartial judges. You see, these statutes are judicial statutes that were meant to be enforced by God's ordained authority, not individuals. Second purpose for the law was to prevent excess and harsh punishment. Uh, we have a phrase that we use in American criminal justice today, cruel and inhumane treatment. I hesitate to use it because it has been so misabused and misapplied today. You see, but what God is doing here is he is placing limits on the extent of the punishment of the individual. You see, if you chip someone's tooth, uh, you couldn't be killed for it. It was an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The idea is that the punishment should fit the crime. You know, and then even these are not absolutes we have to look at. Uh, God is giving his law, and it didn't demand that it was an eye for an eye. It was, the idea was that it was commensurate punishment for the crime. You know, in this respect, we could classify these laws as being given for mercy. It prevented somebody who may be a, a poor person who offended a rich person from having that rich person put all the, the power that they had to bear on the, on the little person. The punishment should fit the crime. Now we have an application right here. We don't have to go any further for, for parents. We as parents, uh, do we do this even when we punish our children? It's a good rule of thumb. It's God's law that whatever offense our children do, we should have the punishment fit the crime. Children is something for you as well. Uh, when you commit an offense, when you disobey, you should expect punishment that fits your crime. It's a standard that we can use even in our homes that God has given. The third purpose for the law was to prevent false witnesses from coming forward. The third, por the third portion of scripture that applies here is in Deuteronomy 19, and we see it, it addresses this area very specifically. Verse 18 of chapter 19, Deuteronomy. And the judges shall investigate thoroughly. Now notice again right at the beginning, it is the judges who are investigating, not the individuals involved. And the judges shall investigate thoroughly. And if the witness is a false witness and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. And the rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. Thus you shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, 
tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. You see, the intent here is obvious. If you're going to accuse a person of a crime or you're going to bring some sort of a lawsuit against the person, you better have the evidence. It better be a true lawsuit. Because if you are proved to be giving false testimony, then you are liable for all the punishment that would have come upon your, the person you have accused. Now, this is a policy that certainly discourages frivolous lawsuits. Uh, we could use this in our society today. We have lawsuits. People are suing things that, that are outrageous in our society today. And God, knowing this, gives this specific command to limit that type of behavior. Notice something else. God hates false witnesses. Verse 21, thus you shall not show pity. That's a strong statement. God takes oaths and vows seriously. We went into that a little bit last week. And we see that when somebody comes in and gives false testimony and swears because they have to swear by the name of God, remember, God doesn't take that lightly. And he says, in that case, show no pity. If only that were the rule in our courts today. Do you know that perjury statutes are seldom enforced in our society today? It is so seldom. It is rare to hear of a perjury prosecution. And that's why we have so much false swearing. Uh, a man's word today, uh, we don't, when a man says, I'm telling the truth, that means nothing. In fact, Francis Schaeffer, in some of his discourses, he even referred to true truth as opposed to false truth. I mean, it's lunacy that he would even have to do that, but truth means very little. Now, this follows in from our message of last week on false swearing, on the keeping of oaths. You've had a week now to digest the message. I'm not going to let it go. How do you stand up? Did you go home after last week's message and determine how you stand before God as being a man or a woman of integrity or a child of integrity? Uh, do your friends, your workmates, your classmates, do they know that you're a man or a woman or a child of your word? Do they look at you and say, yes, his yes is yes, his no is no. When he says something, you can take it to the bank. His word is his bond. Young children, do your parents have to drag the truth out of you? Or when they ask you a question, do you, do you just openly and honestly admit it, even when you are wrong? To all of us, do you shade the truth to put yourself in the best possible light? Do you embellish on your accomplishments and your past so that others will think more highly of you? You see, all of these is what the Pharisees did. That's exactly what they did. And we are in danger of falling into the error of the Pharisees if we do the same thing. God wants his people to be men and women of the word. Your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Now let's look and see what the Pharisees did with the laws of retaliation. The error of the Pharisees. What they did was, their main error was they turned the law into personal application. And this is what Jesus is addressing here. You see, the, the Pharisees had completely twisted these laws to say exactly the opposite of the intent of their law. 
They used these laws to extract compensation from their enemies. And according to the Pharisees, it was a matter of their right, a divine right, to demand an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. They committed the error of Shylock. You familiar with the Shakespearean play, The Merchant of Venice? It's one of my favorites. If you remember Antonio, the Merchant of Venice, who is a good man, uh, he's always giving to the poor and giving to those who needs, and Shylock is the, is the money changer, and the merchant finds himself in a position where he has to borrow some money. And Shylock hates Antonio, and what he does is instead of putting up collateral one of his merchant ships, he demands a pound of flesh. Well, Antonio foolishly agrees, and then as the circumstances come up, one after another of his ships disappears at sea, and now he's in a position where he can't pay. And now comes the court scene, and Shylock is demanding his pound of flesh. You see, Shylock hated Antonio. And he was using this. Other people came forward and agreed to pay. And he says, no, it must come from him. Because he was using the laws of Venice to his benefit because he wanted to kill Antonio. That was his intention all along. And what a great twist Shakespeare had. And he pulls out, and, uh, and I know Shakespeare, I don't know if Shakespeare was a believer, but I know he had to have a great biblical knowledge for what he has to say. But Shylock winds up to be out Pharisee. Because if you remember the great courtroom scene when he is finally given the knife and said, okay, take your pound of flesh, but not one drop of blood because you didn't bargain for blood. So if you take your pound of flesh and one drop of blood is shed, then it's going to cost you your life. So wait a minute, maybe I'll take one of the other offers. <laughs> no, it's too late. And so Shylock walks away empty-handed. You know, the Pharisee is always winds up outsmarting himself. Jesus demonstrated this numerous times. The Pharisees would come to him and test him with twistings of their law, and he would always set them straight and put them right in line. You know, the Pharisees among us today seem to be prospering. But we have to remember this, it's only for a season. And let me caution you lest you fall into the same trap of the Pharisees and holding to the jots and the diddles of the law. <coughs> Children, young people, high school age, junior high, and even younger, you may seem to see that your, your friends have an easier life than you. They have all these freedoms. They can do all of these things. And you seem to be restricted by your Christianity. Take the lesson from Shylock, the lesson of Scripture, the lesson of the Pharisees. That freedom, that type of life is only for a season. God judges the heart. And it is the heart of man that he's going to look at. And these Pharisees who go out there, maybe even put on a good front, God's going to look right through them and pierce their heart. You see, if you start to set up as a Christian a set of external rules and regulations... God's going to judge you the same way. Remember the whole context for this sermon here is that is that your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And there's only one righteousness that can do that. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Second thing they did was they took this law themselves instead of using the God-ordained governing authorities. You see, that they, they set themselves up as the interpreters of the law. Uh, they set themselves up as the judges of the law. And then they proceeded to execute the penalties of the law themselves. So in essence, they became a law unto themselves accountable to no one. And while giving lip service to obeying the laws of God, they nullified it by their actions. You see, in essence, what it turned out to what was intended to be a positive law, God gave these laws for mercy to, to benefit both the criminal and the, the injured party so that fairness was done. God meant it to be a positive law, and the Pharisees had enacted it for their own benefit. And they turned it into nothing but negative sanctions. You know, unfortunately, many modern-day Christians do the same thing. Uh, we talk about uh, the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. And yet we have people come now to the Sermon on the Mount, and they do exactly the same thing with the Sermon on the Mount that the Pharisees did with the Old Covenant law. So we look for a few moments and see what some of the modern errors are that we see taught based on this sermon. But just before we do that, as we've gone through this sermon, remember we've come up with a few principles that we must understand to interpret the sermon right. First one is this, the sermon is not a code of ethics. There are those who teach that Jesus came in to give a new code of ethics and this is it, the Sermon on the Mount. We have seen that that is false. He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill. The sermon is not a new law. It is not a detailed list of do's and don'ts. Everything you need to know for your life is not necessarily in the Sermon on the Mount. Isn't it amazing that those who overemphasize the fact that, quote, we're under grace, not under law, establish a new law in the words of the sermon? I find that amazing. Second principle we got to do is that this teaching uh, in this sermon is never to be applied mechanically. Uh, we can't go to it and look for case law as lawyers do when they pull out things and, and look for the jots and the tittles. No, Jesus has told us very clearly that it is the spirit of the law and not the letter. The spirit gives life and the letter kills. Third principle we must look at is if our interpretation of Christ's words in this sermon take us into absurd or ridiculous teaching, then it is wrong. It is clearly wrong. And the fourth point is, if your interpretation of any of this teaching contradicts the plain teaching of any other scripture, it is wrong. Scripture interprets scripture, and we must look at the whole counsel of God to the neglect of none. So then what do some of these modern Christians do with this sermon? First thing we've seen is some of them have used it to teach pacifism. Uh, they say that, uh, where Jesus says, resist not evil, that is a blanket statement, and we are never to, uh, to pick up arms against anyone else. The problem with that is this. Uh, this sermon is not teaching for, for governing nations and kingdoms. It is the teaching to control individual behavior. And it is grave error to teach otherwise. It doesn't control the behavior of soldiers. It doesn't control the behavior of civil magistrates or police officers in their official capacity. It is designed for you and I in our daily walk with Jesus Christ. 
That's the purpose of the sermon. They also teach uh, non-involvement in government or military service based on this portion of scripture. This teaching of Christ in Matthew 5, 38 to 42, has nothing to do with the individual's relationship to the state. If you want to know what your responsibility as a Christian is to the state, to the governments, to the church, you've got to look elsewhere. Don't look here. You can go to Romans 13. You can go to 1 Peter 2. And there we have some very explicit instructions on what our responsibilities are as, as Christians in, in a government. But not here. This governs individual responsibility. Some would teach that a Christian must never defend himself from attack no matter how violent it must be. We must never resist evil under any circumstances. They would say a Christian must never raise his hand toward anyone, ever. Is this the teaching of God's word? Is this the intent that Christ has? Let's now look and see what Christ says about the error of the Pharisees. The true meaning of the law of God from the lips of Jesus Christ. You see, the whole portion of scripture that we're looking at can be summed up in a phrase that's not even used here, but Jesus uses elsewhere. We can look at this whole portion of scripture, Matthew 5, 38 to 42, and sum it up in one phrase, deny yourself. Deny yourself. That's the point that Jesus is getting at here. This is some tough teaching by our Lord. I mean, this is, this is tough when you go through this and say, how do I behave in light of what he teaches here? You see, far from granting the right to vengeance for wrongs suffered, Jesus tells us in this portion of scripture that we shouldn't be overly concerned about these matters. There are institutions that God has set up to handle these. He's got the courts, he's got the government, and on the, the, the other side he has the church. He has the family to deal with children. But for the individual Christian, in your daily walk, the standard is different. And those Old Testament judicial laws don't govern how you live your life day in and day out. You see, what Jesus does here is he tears down the self-righteousness of the Pharisees who wrongly apply his laws to the benefit of themselves. He not only tears it down, he then tramples on them. And then he teaches what the standard for the Christian should be. You see, the teaching and this portion of scripture must be taken in light of its context. Remember, we looked at the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are the characteristics of the Christian. The Christian and only the Christian can have those characteristics, and he must have all of them. And the teaching that Jesus gives here, if you do not take it in light of the Beatitudes, is meaningless. You see, to the non-believer, the teaching of Jesus Christ here is nonsense. It makes no sense to the natural man to do these type of things, to have this kind of an attitude. So in that respect, it's a hard teaching. If you're a non-believer sitting here this morning, and some of the things I'm saying, you're looking at me saying, how can anybody live their life that way? It's only through the power of Jesus Christ, the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, who comes in and gives us that new heart. This is hard teaching that Jesus is giving us. So how should we approach this? Let me quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, talking about this, how we should approach this portion of scripture. He said this, how often do we tend to forget that the most important factor when we come to scripture, and especially to a difficult statement like this, is the preparation 
of the Spirit. It is not enough to come to Scripture with a mind, however clear and powerful and intellectual. In the understanding and the elucidation of Scripture, the Spirit is very much more important even than the mind. You see, Jesus starts off in verse 39 with a general statement. He says, But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil. This is a general principle that Jesus starts with and then he's going to elaborate on. In other words, what he's saying is in your personal life, the life that Jesus Christ has called you to, the judicial rules of retaliation do not apply. As a follower of Christ, he has called us to a difficult life. He has told us that in this life you will have tribulation. He says, and part of that life is going to be persecution. You may suffer abuse and attacks. He's telling us that if we are to be of use for him, we must not concern ourselves with defending our honor. We are to become indifferent to ourself and to self-esteem. He means that we are not to strike out against personal criticism, insult, and all that may happen to us when we're serving Jesus Christ. Because those times will come. And he doesn't want us to be overly concerned with these things. He wants us to focus on the main thing. And it's accomplishing his will in this life. You see, the Apostle Paul had that. Remember, the Apostle Paul from the church in Corinth was subject to grave attack on his integrity and his character. They had many divisions, and they leveled some great attacks against him. And look at what he says. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 3. But to me it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you. Or by any human court, in fact. I do not even examine myself. Paul says, it doesn't really matter to me what you're saying about me. Uh, you can say these things about me. It's okay, because I'm really not concerned about that. He goes on to say, because his examiner is the Lord. You see, Christ elaborates on these general principles. The idea that we're not supposed to be so concerned and so consumed with self with four basic applications to give us an idea of how we should apply them. We'll look at each of them and then examine the concept of whether or not there are limits to any of the teaching that he's given to us. First principle he gives us is in verse 39. Right after he says, do not resist him who is evil, he says, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You see, in denying ourselves, we must rid ourselves of that spirit of retaliation. The spiritual man must not react as the natural man does. The concept of vengeance and retaliation is left to one who has the ability and the power and the authority to carry it out, and that's God. We read early in Romans chapter 12, verse 17 to 19, the apostle Paul says this, never pay back evil to for evil to anyone respect what is right in the sight of all men if possible so far as it depends on you be at peace with all men never take your own revenge beloved but leave room for the wrath of God for it is written vengeance is mine I will repay says the Lord you see when you're out there doing God's work when you're doing what he wants you to do you're advancing his kingdom you're going to be subject to attack whether it be personal, and here in particular, talking about bodily harm, somebody slapping you, the Apostle Paul says, don't return evil for evil. God is your avenger. Let me 
just ask a simple question. Who do you think can avenge you better, you or God? If I want somebody to pay back for me, I'll take God. You know, that's not just a New Testament concept. And this goes right along with our teaching that, that Jesus is not giving new law here. We see this, this was expected of the old covenant saints as well. Deuteronomy 32, verses 35 to 37. Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. For the Lord will vindicate his people and will have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their strength is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free, and he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge? Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. Proverbs 24, verse 28 and 29. Do not be a witness against your neighbor without cause and do not deceive with your lips. Do not say, thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. You see, this is a principle that God has right from the beginning. Uh, those who are believers in Jesus Christ, those who are his children, are not to have the spirit of retaliation. God is our avenger. Second application that Jesus gives us here is in verse 40. He says, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. You see, in the first example, he's talking about your body, somebody slapping you. In the second example, he's talking about your possessions, someone suing you for your coat. Men are very much consumed by possessions, aren't we? Uh, they guard them. Uh, and hoard them. This is mine and you have no right to it. We see that from the time children are this big, don't we? Getting children to share their toys is one of the biggest obstacles we have as parents. It's built right into us. Jesus says that your possessions get in the way of your working for the kingdom. Who do you serve? We're going to Explore this a little bit later in the Sermon on the Mount where he says you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve your possessions and serve God at the same time. Jesus says, somebody going to sue you for your shirt? Give him your coat. Why are you concerned about these things? What are you more concerned about, your possessions or serving me? That's what he's saying. He says, did you forget who gave you all these things anyway? You see, there's a principle of Jewish law that comes into play here, too. Under Jewish law, it was illegal for someone to sue another person for their outer garment, for their coat. Uh, even if it was taken in pledge, and if you remember in our series on Proverbs, we went through this about being a surety. Even if it was taken as a pledge or a surety, it had to be returned every night to the rightful owner. With that in mind, that sheds even a little bit more light on what Jesus is saying here. He says, even give to them what they have no right to. He says, maybe they do have a legal claim to your shirt. He says, I'm telling you to go one better and give them what even the courts won't give them. That's the attitude of the heart that Jesus is giving, getting at here. You see, what is the essence of his teaching? Things, possessions, are not what is important to the person who is following Jesus Christ 
and we put them too high. The third principle we see here is in verse 41. And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. We've looked at the body, we've looked at possessions. What we're looking here at now is personal liberty. You see, there's another legal principle here at work. In the ancient world, the conquering nation would come in and it was almost a, a routine thing that the conquering nation's soldiers could compel one of the citizens to carry his baggage, whatever he had with them, for one mile in any direction. Uh, the Romans had such a law compelling the Jews to do that for a mile. Uh, that's the, that's the, the background to what Jesus is saying here. So if, if somebody comes up to you and compels you to carry something for a mile, he says, go the extra one. You see, when this was done with people, uh, just imagine you're going about your business, your daily work. You've got things to do, places to go, people to see. And all of a sudden, a soldier comes and says, you're going that way? No, you're not. Carry my bag. You're going to go for a mile in this way. It was be done begrudgingly. You did it because you had to do it. But it was done begrudgingly with a, with a, a bitter spirit. Jesus says, no. No, he says, that's not what I want you to do. He says, I want you to, if they compel you to go a mile, go the extra one, go two. Go more, do more than what's required of you. You see, we're getting back here. Christianity is a religion of the heart. And the new heart that Jesus Christ has given us will manifest itself in ways such as this. The Christian employee should be known for doing things above and beyond the call of duty. If, you, if you're an employee, your employer should be looking at you and saying, boy, I, I can tell he's a Christian. I, I told him to, to wash the floor. Not only did he wash that floor, but he washed the second one besides. Above and beyond the call of duty. Fourth principle that we see kind of sums it up. Verse 42, he says, give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. It's kind of a summary of everything that he's talked about uh, and just the, the general attitude of, of giving. See, the Christian is supposed to be free with all of the resources God has given him. We can just see again here the overriding principle that Jesus is talking about in this portion of Scripture is that one of denying yourself. Denying yourself and always becoming other-oriented. Isn't that the Christian life? What Jesus Christ tells us to do, what he did as an example for us, he didn't consider his own interest. He was always looking out for the interests of the other person. He came and died for you, for me. He was always concerned about the other person. The Christian is supposed to demonstrate that same type of, of lifestyle. And whatever resources God gives, be willing to share those. Your time, your money, whatever it is, with others. But now we must look at some of the dangers of a naive and a mechanical interpretation of these portions of scriptures. If someone comes and says, give me your house, must you do it? If someone tries to stab you with a knife and kill you, must you stand there and let them? Because there are those who take these teachings that far. You see, there are biblical limits, and we must always take Scripture in context with everything else. The teaching of Jesus Christ here must be taken in the context in which it is meant and then looked in light of everything else that he says otherwise. See, there are other principles involved that work as well. 
And here what Christ is doing, he's getting to the attitude of the heart. He's saying, you've got to get as a Christian to the point where you're totally denying yourself and being willing to give unto others. But there's a, a, something that goes against that. On the other side, self-denial versus the obligation to uphold the laws, which is also the obligation of the Christian. You see, as a husband and a father, I have the obligation to protect my family. And if someone tries to harm them, I have the obligation to resist and protect them with all that I can. And I will. Don't break into my house at night. I have a gun. I'll warn everybody right now. So if you seeing this sermon and I got something you want, <laughs> don't break into my house at night. <laughs> You see, when Christ says, turn the other cheek, it's not to tempt the person to do wrong. It's not to tempt him to hit you again. That would be sin. You see, if somebody comes up and slaps you on the cheek, and you go, I'm a Christian. Go ahead, do it again. That would be sin. Because you're tempting the person to do something that's wrong. He did something wrong in the first place. You're tempting him to do it wrong in the second place. No, the attitude of the Christian. Why do we turn the other cheek? You've done me wrong. You've violated the law. You ought not to do that. Jesus Christ says that that's wrong. Here. Now do what's right. I'll give you the other cheek. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do what is right. Kiss this one. See, that's what Jesus is talking about. It's the attitude of you are doing everything for the other person. You take the wrong that was done to you and you say, you've done wrong. Now let's, now do what's right. That's the attitude of the Christian. Always other-oriented, denying self. Do, do I have a right of, of slapping them back? Maybe in a court of law. But Jesus says, no, do what's right for him. You see, the principles that Christ is giving us here is not meant as a license for you to foolishly squander your resources either. Charitable giving, he says, give to all freely, but wisely, we're told in Proverbs, to give wisely. Check the people. Don't be given to professionals who are making a living out of accepting charity. Make sure that the money is going to a place where it's to do the most good. It's to do wisely, freely, but wisely. The two are not mutually exclusive. You see, the Christian should have the right balance of justice and mercy. And always for the other person's benefit. Sometimes it's for the person's benefit to see that they get justice so that they won't do it again. The teaching of Christ in this portion of scripture is clear. It's meant to check the attitude of the heart of the believer. Where are you at? If you see someone committing a crime especially if it's a crime against another person, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are obligated to do whatever is in your power to help. That's what a Christian is supposed to be doing. You see, but there's also a positive side to this command. It's not enough to refrain from retaliation and vengeance. That's the first step, but it doesn't stop there. Remember one of the characteristics of the Christians we went over in the Beatitudes is to be a peacemaker. That is not a passive characteristic. It requires action on the part of the Christian. Look again at Romans 12, verses 14 to 21, and we see that Paul says in uh, 
Paul says in verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And then he goes on and says, never take revenge, never take your own revenge, uh, leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine. We've gone all through that. But Paul doesn't end there. He follows up on that theme with verses 20 and 21. He says, that's good. You've got to a good start. Don't revenge. Don't slap the person who slapped you. That's good, but it's not enough. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, the Christian is in the face of adversaries, in the face of persecution, in the face of trials, somebody offending you and wronging you. It's not good enough just to refrain from retaliation. You are now to turn that around and do something good to help that person. You see, evil is not to be resisted by retaliation. Jesus makes that clear. It is to be resisted, but by overcoming it with good. That's the duty of the Christian. This is hard stuff Jesus has given us here. We can't just sit back in a corner and watch chaos break out. We've got to go in and try to make peace, he says. It is the duty of the child of God, and it has always been that way, even in the old covenant. Look at Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22. That's what Paul is quoting here. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. See, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He didn't come to establish new law. He came to fulfill the law and to explain the law from the era of the Pharisees and saying what you guys are saying is wrong. What you're doing is wrong. This is the way it was supposed to have been ever since the law was given. And it's by his grace and his power of the Holy Spirit that we can all overcome evil with good. You know, as I sat listening to those two lawyers picking that jury, all I could think of was, was how, how much of Pharisees they were. They said all the right things, but it was a show. It was a show. They didn't want justice. They wanted victory for their side. How about you? How about you? When you're faced with the situations that we've been looking at here, how do you react? Do you retaliate? Do you give eye for eye, tooth for tooth? Is that the general demeanor that you have? Is that what you portray in your daily life? You know, the main application for this for us is not being slapped on the cheek. How many people really were slapped on the cheek last week? It's not being sued for your clothes. How many people can actually say they've been sued for their, court, their shirt or their coat? It's not being compelled to travel a mile. How many of us have been asked to do that? Now, there's some greater applications for us here, but it's not in the big things. You know, the true test of the character, I am convinced, is not in the big things. It's easy when you're standing in court in front of national TV to put on airs and play the martyr, be a Pharisee. I'm convinced that it's in the little affairs of life, day in and day out, where the Christian is tested. When someone in church doesn't return your phone call, what do you say? What's the attitude of your heart? Ah, oh, that's it for them. 
See if I ever call them again. Wow, that one must have struck a chord. How about this? She walked right by me, and I didn't even acknowledge I was there. That's it. I'm not going to say hello to her tomorrow either. How about this one? You know, I give and I give. I'm always there for people, and I'm giving and giving. But when I really needed somebody, nobody was there for me. That's it. No more Mr. Nice Guy. You can put whatever scenario you want on that. But are your feelings getting hurt in the church? Then you're thinking about yourself. That's the message for us this morning. Are your feelings hurt often by other people? Then you're focusing on yourself. You may even be right and the other person wrong. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Give him your coat. Go the extra mile. You see, that's the demonstration of the heart that has been changed when you have the ability to do that. That's the demonstration of the heart that is seeking Christ. There is no room in God's kingdom for revenge. You know, even the change in your attitude is revenge. Didn't call me. I'm not calling her. That's revenge. Eye for an eye. She did this to me. I'm going to do this to her. He did this to me. I'm going to do this to her, to him. The Christian must be prepared to give this whole question of personal retaliation to God. When you do that, when you can give this whole thing of retaliation, revenge, even in your attitudes to God, then you will enter into a condition in which you can't be hurt. It's dying to self. George Mueller, that great saint from over in England who, who rose, brought up that big orphanage, wrote this. There was a day when I died, utterly died, died to George Mueller and his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will, died to the world, its approval or censure, died to the approval of blame of even my brethren and friends. Since then I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. How can one live a life like this? Is it possible to live a life like this? One more quote from Dr. Lloyd-Jones, who answers it so well. He says, whenever I notice in myself a reaction of self-defense or a sense of annoyance or a grievance or a feeling that I have been hurt and wronged and am suffering an injustice, the moment I feel this defensive mechanism coming into play, I must just quietly face myself and ask the following questions. Why exactly does this thing upset me? Why am I grieved by it? What is my real concern at this point? Am I really concerned from some general principle of justice and righteousness? Am I really moved and disturbed because I have some true cause at heart? Or let me face it honestly, is it just myself? Is it just this terrible, foul, self-centered, and self-concerned, this morbid condition into which I have got? It is nothing but an unhealthy and unpleasant pride. Such self-examination is essential if we are to conquer in this matter. One final thought as we close. If you're a Christian and you find yourself living in misery and unhappiness, if you believe that you have some legitimate grudge or grievance against another brother, against the church, against somebody, 
then you are saying that God is not being fair with you. He has you in circumstances that you do not deserve. Christian, if you find yourself in that condition this morning, get your focus off yourself and back on God. The goal of personal sanctification is holiness. And holiness means to be delivered from the self-centered life. I trust we have all seen ourselves this morning. I know I have. Let's pray. Father God, may you forgive us for the sin of self-centeredness. Father, we look at the Pharisees and we've been seeing their errors and yet we realize that often we lapse into the same errors. We would pray this morning now, Father, that as we have heard from your word, the teaching of Jesus Christ, we pray that you would impress it on our hearts. Deliver us from ourselves. Help us to focus on you. For we know when we do, comes real joy. Paul sang hymns in stocks in the dungeon because he didn't focus on himself. He focused on you. May you grant us the grace to do the same. In Jesus' name, amen.